Open your Bibles with me today to the book of James. We're in James chapter 5. We've been walking through this series. We entitled it Faith with Feet. And the reason, I hope you've kind of understood, like now that we've been walking through four chapters now, getting ready to go into the fifth, of why we entitled this series Faith with Feet. Because what it really means is, is that, that we understand what faith is all about. But then we also, as we've been reading, as we've been studying over the last couple of days, that it requires action, right? One of the great statements that we've heard of the last couple of weeks is that faith without works is what? Say it louder. Faith without works is dead. In other words, it doesn't, it's not dependent on our works. Our salvation is dependent on one thing and one thing alone. The fact that Jesus is our salvation, that he died and that he rose the third day for us. Believing and trusting in him. Faith in him is where we find our salvation. But we cannot leave it there. We have to act. We have to allow that to change our course and to change our actions, to change our heart. And so that's why we've entitled this series Faith with Feet, because we have to make sure that we're actually putting actions together with what we believe in our hearts. And so today we're going to jump into James chapter 5. And James chapter 5 is kind of an interesting passage, really. It's kind of a passage where James, again, the half-brother of Jesus, writing these words, he, he kind of allowed this to be a season or a moment, if you will, where he kind of changed things around. Where he kind of like, you know, knowing that maybe again, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that, that God led him to write kind of a, a couple little uh, statements in this last chapter, these last words of this letter that he wrote, this epistle that he wrote, uh, to, to give kind of very clear direction in a couple of different directions. In other words, a couple of things to different people for different purposes, for different reasons, but all of them are applicable. All of them are powerful. All of them are important. And so today, that's what we're going to dig into, this idea of James chapter 5. And I want to start, if we could, with the key verse for our sermon today. And it's James chapter 5, verse 8. And I want to read this verse to you. It just says this, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, understand this. James wrote these words 2,000 years ago. And he wrote them to a group of people, believers that were in, again, first century Christians, not far removed from uh, the, uh, the, the, the resurrection of Christ, not far removed from watching him uh, being crucified on that cross. And so uh, it is an interesting uh, kind of dynamic here that he's writing these words 2,000 years ago to a group of people that had witnessed something that we didn't witness that we didn't see, but yet he writes these words, and again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute now. If the Holy Spirit inspired these words, then why would the Holy Spirit inspire James to write the words, the coming of the Lord is at hand, and now it's been 2,000 years since these words were written? I mean, obviously the Lord hasn't returned, so was James wrong? Was the Holy Spirit wrong? Did he pick up the wrong vibe when he was sitting there being spoken to by God? The answer is, all of this is absolutely accurate. Here's why. Because from the moment that Jesus ascended into heaven, we need to recognize that we are in the last days. That we are in that season where the coming of the Lord is at hand. Why? Because the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. And so no matter what we do and no matter how we act, no matter how old we are, how young we are, I was out on Main Street this morning and talking to some people as they were walking in and uh, had the great opportunity of talking with some children. And then I had some great opportunity of talking with some people who are not children. 
some people who've been around quite a while, a long time. I talked to uh, Lewis and Maudina Moore. Now, they're not old. Uh, but they were, you know, Marina was back in, in this church like when it started. I mean, she's been around a long time. And so regardless of, uh, of the journey, whether we're young or whether we're old or whether we're new or whether we've been around here a long time, let me just make this very clear. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And we must live our lives as if it could happen today. We must be passionate about it. So James is writing these words. Very clearly, he's telling us, listen, be patient, establish your heart, like dig in to what it is that God wants you to dig into, and then recognize this, Christ could return at any moment. That's a pretty good message, isn't it? Uh, For where we are in today's culture, when we see all the craziness that's going around in today's world, when we see all the things on the news, and we see all the protests, and, you know, we see all the, uh, just the craziness that's happening around the globe. Man, it's important for us to remember that Christ could return at any moment. And so what, what, what must we be, do, uh, be doing? What must we be? Here's what it is. One word. Can you guess what it is? Ready. We've got to be ready. We've got to be prepared. And so that's what James is writing this statement, writing this passage, writing this chapter all about. So let's just dig into it again. There's four, just four different thoughts. It kind of seems like in all of these chapters, there's been kind of four different streams of, of thought here that, that James gives to us. And so the first one is this. Understand this. Our motives matter. The motives that we have in life really matter. Look what it says, verse 1 and following. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Seboeth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Now you're sitting there thinking like, what does this have to do with anything? What's he actually talking about? Here's what he's really talking about. He's talking about the motives of man. Now this passage, again, he writes these words uh, these first few, uh, first six verses of, uh, of James chapter 5, and he's writing them actually for two purposes. The first, he's writing to the people who are not believers. He's writing it to some evil people. He's writing it to some people who have done others wrong, who've had the wrong motives, the wrong heart. But then he's also writing it, the second purpose, so that we would understand what the right motives really are. Now, I read this statement this week from Thomas Lee, a great quote. It says this, The possession of wealth is not evil. Abusing wealth by selfish living and by harming people dependent on you is. These people seem to have used their wealth only for themselves. And so here's the idea that James wants us to get right up front, is that we sometimes have focused our journey not on serving and loving God, but on serving and loving self. And that's why he writes about the fact that we, we store up treasures for ourselves, and it can be corroded. Our gold is being corroded. Our, our clothes are being moth-eaten. All of the things that we heap up for ourselves, that we gather for ourselves, that we want for ourselves, when it's all about us, when it's all about self, those things will be destroyed. The Bible talks about when we lay up treasures for ourselves. Jesus talked about it. Man, they're just going to be destroyed. 
You can't take them with you. It's the old idea that you've never seen a U-Haul hooked up to a hearse, have you? You cannot take it with you. You cannot take it to the grave. That the stuff that we gather on this earth, that we have to have a motive, a purpose, a reason for what we do. Now, the Bible's clear. We do have a responsibility to be wise. We have a responsibility to, uh, to take care of our household. We have a responsibility uh, to make right decisions, wise decisions, so that we're not wasteful in what we do. But we also must recognize that, that the, what we gain and what we have are things that God blesses us with, gives to us, so that we will use rightly. And so in this passage, what he's writing, he's writing to evil people who had done Christians wrong, who had kept money back from them. Back in those days, in the first century, uh, when they would hire day wages, uh, uh, people who worked for, for day workers, um, the, the responsibility or the kind of a thing, that was a, a thing that was important, in fact, it was commanded, if you go back to Deuteronomy, is that they would be paid actually in the day that they worked. So like when they went to work that day, that the, the, the landholder, the, the owner, the, uh, the boss, that, that he would actually pay them at the end of the day for the work that they did that day. Now, we, we're in a different culture today. We don't do that. Some people get paid every two weeks. Some people get paid, uh, you know, once a month, whatever it might be. But the idea is that you were paid right after the season of your work. However, what he was saying is that there were some people that people would work and they would hold their money back and say, oh, I'll pay you tomorrow. I'll, I'll get it to you later. I'll, I'll get it to you later. And the reason that they did that is because they did not want to let go of what they had. And so what does that kind of tell us? What does that teach us? It's just a simple statement. It's just selfishness. It's all about self. It's about me wanting more and me having more. It's all about uh, focusing on this idea that, that, that we must gather everything that we can get and hold tightly to it. And here's what James says, that stuff will destroy you. So he makes it clear, our motives really do matter. So here's the question, what's really important to you? What are you living for? Obviously, most of us in this room, we have jobs and we work and we work to pay for our, pay our bills and to take care of our households, to feed our families. We do those things. Those things are important. But we also have a responsibility to use what God blesses us with, to use it wisely to impact and help others. That's why the Bible talks about that if there was someone who comes to you and they're hurting and they're hungry and they have nothing and they're coming to you for help and you've got the ability to help them and you don't do it, that is wrong. And so that's what James is talking about here. Our motives really matter. Now that's the first kind of idea, the first statement that he gave to us. Verse 5, he says, you've lived on this earth in pleasure and luxury. You've fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Now here's kind of the idea that they're giving. James is using the context of, of, of back in those days of, of maybe sheep or oxen when, uh, when they, uh, farmers would actually take their animals and they would fatten them up right before the kill. Like they'd get them like all fattened up and ready so that when they actually killed them, when they slaughtered them, there would be more there, more meat there. Tony Bird sitting over here, he knows a little bit about that with cattle and things like that. And you fatten them up so then you can get more meat. You can have a good meal and all those guys. That's kind of the idea that James is saying is that when we live our lives in a selfish motive, selfish uh, ambition all about us, it's the idea that we're trying to make ourselves fatter or have more and we're doing it right up to the point that it leads to our destruction. James is saying, don't, don't let that happen. And so then he goes on in verse 7, 
We're going to continue reading here. He uses that word therefore. So now he's kind of shifting and he's now focusing back on the ones who've done, been done wrong. He's focusing back on the household of faith, Christians. And so uh, the, the second thought, the second idea that James gives to in this passage is this, is that patience is indeed a virtue. Patience is indeed a virtue. James chapter 5, verse 7. Let's read these words. Therefore, he says, be patient. Brethren, until the coming of the Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard the perseverance of Job and, and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. And so here's the idea that James has given to us here, is that we must live our lives in patient trust of God. He uses the idea, the illustration there of the farmer. It talks about the farmer must wait on the fruit of the earth, and he must patiently wait for the early rains and the latter rains. In other words, it's the idea that back in those days, and still today, that farmers must count on, they do all the work, they go out there, get their tractors, they, they plow the fields, they plant the seeds, they're, they're, you know, making sure to prepare the earth, they're doing all the things that they're supposed to do in order to produce their crops, but they also must recognize that it is largely dependent on trusting and waiting on the rains to come. It's the same idea that's true in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own journey. Man, we've got to work. We've got to work diligently. We've got to be passionate, uh, making sure that we're focused on, but we also must wait. We must work, but wait. We must recognize that our application of what James is saying is, man, you have to be patient on God, but you can't go sit on a mountaintop somewhere and wait for God to show up and tell you what His will is for your life what your direction is, what you're supposed to be doing. We have to work as if today really does matter on us, but we have to wait on God, recognizing that it really depends on Him, trusting Him for everything. When things don't go our way, which by the way, in case you haven't noticed, if you've maybe lived a little bit of time in your life, one thing we recognize very clearly in life is sometimes things don't go our way. Am I right about that? How many of you have recognized that sometimes life just doesn't turn out the way that you expected it to turn out? Just raise your hand. I think all of us in this room would say that, that we had this vision, we just had this idea of what it was going to be, we were working towards that, and then it just doesn't happen. Here's what it says here, we don't complain, we trust. You don't complain about your circumstances. You don't complain about the situations you're in. You don't sit back and you grumble and complain about others or complain about your situations or things that are happening. You don't sit back and just complain about everything. You just have to trust God even when it doesn't make sense. And you think about a farmer, again, that James uses here as the illustration. That farmer can go out there and do all the work and prepare the fields and plant the seed. And then if the rain doesn't come and a drought comes... I mean, he's going to sit back and he's going to wreck it. I mean, I've done all this work and, and, and nothing's going to happen here. I'm not going to have the crops that, that I intended. Or maybe, maybe the rains do come and maybe the crops begin to grow, but then maybe a swarm of locusts come in and destroy. Or maybe something else happens, a fire that sweeps through the fields. And, and so that farmer has a choice. That farmer can sit back and complain and grumble and, 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 and be bitter and be angry or... 
that farmer can trust God and work out a plan that comes to uh, the conclusion that based on what God's plan is. Listen, we must live as a clear representative of the truth that God is all that we need. God is going to bring you through. That God is going to give you the strength that you need, the wisdom that you need, the direction that you need, the guidance that you need to make it through the most difficult days in life. And so he says, man, you got to be patient. Just trust God. Remember, he's writing this right after he talks about people who have done them wrong. And so he's talking about all these bad things that the evil people do. And then he says, but, but you, therefore, listen, be patient. They're going to do that stuff, but be patient. They're going to treat you badly, but, but be patient. Why? Because when we are waiting on God, there is no more safe place that you could ever be than right there. You cannot be more safe than when you're trusting and waiting on God. Patience is a virtue. The third idea that he gives us here in James chapter 5, it starts off in verse 13. And here's basically what he gives to us, an important statement. Again, it seems like these are all kind of like little staccato uh, statements in here, but they all kind of flow together. So like there's people who have the wrong motives. And now the people who have the wrong motives are hurting people, and those people need to recognize that they must be patient and wait on God. And then we come to the third section of this chapter, and basically the idea here is James gives them the pro proper heart for, the proper posture of prayer. Let's read verse 13 and following. Verse 13 and following says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. It says, verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, here's what we're talking about here. James is talking about prayer, and he's talking about the idea that oftentimes our prayers, in our minds, they fall short. That sometimes prayers aren't being answered, that prayers are just not getting through. And we feel like, man, I've been praying and praying and praying, but man, it just not, has not happened. It just, God has not answered my prayer. Listen, what we must rest, recognize is this, is that God always answers our prayers. God doesn't sometimes answer the way that we want, but God always answers the way that fits into, that lines up with God's will. I think everybody in this room has been through a season in your life where you've prayed for God to do something huge, for God to do something great, for God to do something amazing, and for some reason, for whatever reason, God has done something totally different, and it confuses you. I know I've been there. <clears throat> I prayed some prayers when I was with my dad when he was on the floor of his office, and Mike and others were in that room, and they were performing CPR on my dad. And I was praying, and Mike will tell you this, man, I was praying fervently in that room that day, praying that God would heal my dad, that God would bring him back. And man, I've been telling you, Mike and other men, they were working hard, and they were doing all the right things, and they did it for a long time. And here we are now, 13 years later, God didn't answer my prayer the way that I wanted it that day. God did answer my prayer, because I was praying for healing. You know, if we could like have the opportunity of like, putting on this big screen on the back wall, kind of a view of heaven, 
of what heaven's really like. If we could put on this back wall and the screen, maybe a picture, a glimpse, just for a moment, and look into heaven and to see what is going on in heaven, to see my dad and maybe your loved one that we prayed that God would heal and, and God didn't heal the way that we asked him to heal. But we could actually look and we could see how they're doing today. I think everyone in this room would sit back and think, wow, God, God answered my prayer. Because heaven's an amazing place. I prayed those prayers with my mom. She's in heaven. I've prayed those prayers time and time again for God to do something. And God did something, but he maybe didn't do it the way that I asked. You see, James is reminding us here that sometimes we have to recognize that prayer is a portrait of healing. God always heals, but God sometimes heals in different ways. And sometimes we sit back and we wonder, why didn't God answer my prayer? Maybe it's because we didn't ask the right way. Maybe it's because of sin that was in our life. In fact, it even talks about that in this passage in verse, um, in verse 15. It, it talks about how that we would be healed from sickness and we would also be forgiven of our sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We read it every time in this passage. We read it every time we have the Lord's table, communion here in this room. And it talks about because of our sin, because of our actions, because of our actions that go against the Word of God, that some of us are sick. In other words, sometimes we actually do have sin that affects us, that impacts us. And what we need to be praying for is not that God would heal, but we need to pray for God's forgiveness for what we've done. You see, sometimes that's the the picture. You see, sometimes we ask God to do things, and it doesn't line up with the perfect will of God. It doesn't line up with what God commands and what God desires. So then how do we fix that? The proper posture of prayer goes back to verse... uh, Uh, Verse 16, I'll read it again. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, and this is, you know, it's, it's not typical of man, just for a man, or of a righteous woman. It avails much. It's powerful. What are the couple of key words there? Fervent, that means a a state of constant spirit of prayer. The Bible tells us to pray always, right? But then it goes on to say in that word righteous. In other words, that we're praying because we are in good standing with God, that our prayers are coming from a person that is connected to God in ways of righteousness. And so we pray, and we pray, and we pray. Now listen, we've got to understand that in our lives, uh, in our hearts, that we've got to focus on the right attitude of prayer. It goes back to verse 13. In verse 13, let's read that again if we could. It says this, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So when things are going wrong, what do we do? That's a quiz. If things are going wrong, what do we do? We pray. Keep reading. Verse 13, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. What is singing psalms? Praise. You see, oftentimes in our faith walk, we come to a crisis in life, and man, we go right to our knees and we pray. We haven't prayed for a while, but man, when crisis arrives, man, we get on our knees and we're praying to God. And then things get better. And you know what we do when things get better? We forget God. So this passage, again, how do we have a a fervent prayer of a righteous man, of a righteous woman? Verse 13, it's the antidote, it's the picture right here. Here's what you do. Man, you make sure you're always praying. Praying when things are bad and praising when things are good. 
of recognizing that our prayer lives are a constant communication, a constant conversation with God, no matter whether good or bad, mountaintops or valleys, that we are always talking to God. That's why my dad, every day of his life, he would always read one proverb a day, and then he would read five psalms a day. And he often told us, he told us here at this church, he told me personally and privately, he said, I do that for one reason. I do it so that my heart is always on the proverb, always focused on doing right, making sure that I'm staying away from sin, making sure that when I face conflict, I'll know what to do. And I always read the psalm because I always want to have a heart of knowing that God is my refuge, God is my deliverance. I want to praise God for everything that he's done. And so he read five psalms a day and a proverb every day of his life until the day that he went home because he always wanted to make sure in the bad times he was praying and in the good times he was praising. That's kind of a good plan, isn't it? The proper posture of prayer. And then the last statement. The last two verses of this chapter that are very powerful. James' last words, and man, they couldn't be more hopeful for all of us. Listen to these words. Verse 19, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So what does that tell us? What's the kind of the thought here? Here's the thought of the power of purpose, the power of purpose. Here's what it really means. It means is that there's always hope. Look in this verse, in this passage, in verse uh, 19. It says that if someone wanders from the truth and someone turns them back. You know what the hope found in that passage? It really, it's talking to the person like who helps someone come back to their walk. And someone who's kind of gotten away from God and backslidden and kind of helping them back. It's talking to that person. But here's where I find the hope in that passage. It says when someone wanders from the truth, which oftentimes it happens, we all know people like that, and then it says, and that person helps to turn him back. You know where the hope is found? The fact that they can always turn back. God will never turn his back on you. We turn our backs on him all the time. God will never turn his back on you. We can always come back. Man, what kind of hope does that give? Because we all have people in our lives that we're thinking of, maybe right now, that have gotten away from God. And maybe you thought, man, there's just no hope. They've gotten so far, they've drifted so far away. There's just nothing that can be done. Oh, yes, there is. Because there's always hope with a God who always loves. So, man, we've got to focus on that great truth, that great promise. God will always welcome us back. Now, here's another statement you've got to understand. Sometimes that person that needs to turn back is you. There may be someone sitting in this room today. Maybe you're sitting here because you think that by coming to church on a Sunday morning, you kind of check in the box and all is well, and you go out during the week, and you live however you want to live. You're walking away from God, living in whatever life you want to live, doing things you know dishonor God, dishonor His Word, knowing that you're living in a way that does not please God. Listen, let me just tell you, time is short. We talked about it when we started. We talk about it when we end. Man, we are living in the last days. The coming of the day of the Lord is close. Don't be caught living in a way that doesn't honor and please Him. Today, if that person's you, the greatest hope, the greatest message you'll ever hear is just simply this. What Jesus tells us, God will always forgive. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
and said today with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if that person is you today that needs to turn back, if that person today is you that you've gotten off track and away from God, just right now, just say, God, I'm sorry. God, I've blown it. God, forgive me. God, change me. He promises He'll do it. God is right there. He wants to welcome you back. I just encourage you to pray that prayer. Maybe you're a person who's never trusted Christ. The Bible tells us we must believe that Jesus is God's Son, that He died and that He rose again. And if we will believe that, here's what God's Word says, we will be saved. So maybe today that's you and you need to pray this prayer along with me, silently from your heart to God's heart. God, I'm a sinner. God, I know I need a Savior. God, I believe that Jesus is your Son. I believe that He died and that He rose for me. So today I ask you, forgive me of my sins. Save me today through your Son, Jesus. Help me to live for you for the rest of my life as you give me the power to do it. Thank you, God, for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, or maybe you prayed that previous prayer, asking God to forgive you, to turn you back, when this service is over, you're here in this room, our team is gonna be gathered right over here to my left, your right. They'd love to talk with you for a few moments. Maybe you wanna come and kneel here at this altar and just pray a prayer of forgiveness, a prayer of God, forgive me for what I've done. I encourage you to do that. If you're watching this right now on television, internet, or listening on the radio, wherever you might be, I encourage you, if you want spiritual help, if you prayed that prayer, go to trbc.org slash start, a place where you can begin a journey of understanding what it means to trust God, to walk with God, no matter what. Listen, understand this. Our God is faithful. Our God is there. Our God always cares. Our God always loves. So today, let's do the right thing trust him. Amen. There's power in prayer. There's power in our praise. So we're going to close our service today. Ask you to stand and let's declare this truth today of who God is. So lift your voices and declare this truth with us today. Our Father everlasting, the all-creating one. God Almighty, through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior, I believe in God our Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Judge and our defender suffered and crucified. 
thank you for joining with us together today as we see what it is that God has done for us all. And today, if you've made a decision for Christ, or if you would like to talk further about what it is that God has done for you in the giving of His Son, Jesus, I would encourage you to email me at the address that is on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. We would love to connect with you to help you begin a brand new journey with Christ. If you would like to help contribute to our ministry as we take this message of the gospel around the world, go to the link on the screen today and help us help others with an amazing message of God's love.